Week 12, Saints at Rams. 429 in the second quarter, second and seven on the Saints seven. What happens? Oh, Josh Reynolds touchdown off schedule play versus three man rush. You're absolutely Are right. Are you kidding me? You're unbelievable. We all at one point or another have played for a coach who's a jerk. We're always trying to make this roster more and more competitive in every way we can, and these guys are coming into battle. Speaking of distractions, you're not a big fan of social media. Yeah, that would be put in mildly. Second and seven on the Tampa Bay 24, 58 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Jamison Crowder wheel route down the right sideline. <laughs> and what meme was that game? You like that. <laughs> you like that! You like that! Welcome back to the podcast. First time, long time, and bringing it back without any type of formal introduction, without any type of formal name, because who needs names when you've got content? That's really what it's all about. But uh, I like to call it informally the Connor Pod, because as to, uh, you know, differentiate from all my <laughs> other podcast ventures, this one is with a good friend of mine, Connor White. Historically, we've had these conversations from, well, in here, in studio, right here at... Uh, our, uh, our headquarters, our HQ, if you will, in Portland, uh, yeah. on the corner of 5th and Jefferson. But, uh, Connor, we brought you on from all sorts of different places. And where do we find you today on this lovely Tuesday evening, the 18th of September, 2018? I'm in a small little apartment room in Tulsa, Oklahoma today. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm using my phone's personal hotspot to get give Wi-Fi to my computer in order to use Skype, which barely works to talk to you. Sac so that's where we're at right now. He's sacrificing for the team, ladies and gentlemen. Sacrificing exactly. for the team. Um, Connor, obviously, you know our conversation in the past. I think we've done about 26 episodes. You know, going back to. Uh, the SoundCloud page. I, I'm confident one day someone's going to discover what we've done and they're going to be blown away by what we got yeah. to, uh, you know, the yeah. level of preparation that went into some of the topics that we've already discussed. I mean, and we started this, I want to say two and a half years ago or so. I mean, yep. it was back yeah. when Peyton Manning and the Broncos were playing Cam Newton and the Panthers in Super Bowl 50, man. Like we've been yeah. doing this for a minute not always consistently, but I mean, you know, this has been an idea and a passion of ours for for a while. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny, you know, because specifically when a new sports season rolls around or something big in sports happens, it's like, oh man, I have an opinion on this. We gotta we gotta we gotta get on the mics or something because you know there's there's no other way to really do it. I mean, mm -hmm. we'll be texting, we'll be talking, we'll be tweeting, but then eventually you gotta you gotta actually get your thoughts recorded for posterity. That uh, I couldn't have said it better. Yeah, our most recent episode was episode 26, uh, all the way back on, <laughs> oh, man, February 2nd of 2017. <laughs> wow, Which we it, took a while. Gosh, yeah, I went on vacation. Uh, I think that's what happened. I went on sabbatical. That's what it was. We went on sabbatical. That's what we did, and uh, we just returned. We just got back. We got too bogged down in things that didn't matter as much as what we actually enjoy doing, which is getting together and talking about sports. Amen to that. Amen to that. So let's flesh out what kind of spurred this undeniable, um, 
inspiration to get back on the phone and talk about it again. You know, we were we've been watching football. It just wrapped up week two of the NFL season and week three of the college football season. And we were talking in a group chat, you and myself and uh, my brother, and uh, it was kind of centered on who the difference makers are in the coaching profession in the National Football League. Yeah. And we threw around some names. It was a relatively short list, and I think that's yeah. accurate. But we were starting to debate why and why not certain guys were included and what exactly a difference maker was and things like that. But fundamentally, you know, it kind of started with a, a discussion around the process of the decision-making process of coaches in the NFL and yeah. something in particular that was driving you crazy when you watched the games. Can you flesh that out really quick of, of what it was that was – um, giving you annoyance, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. In fact, you know, we'll use recency bias to really let let this shine through. So, I mean, we saw another tie game this week. We've had two tie games in two weeks in the NFL, um, and that really, to me, points to a lack of aggression in decision making processes. And one of the things that um, you you see through statistical analysis of football is that the aggressor is almost always the victor. Um, not not all not always not you know 100% of the time, but more often than not, the aggressor is the victor because the aggressor in football is is the one that gets rewarded frequently. So thinking about it just in a granular term, if if you call a play that's down the field, you throw the ball down the field. There's a lot more better possible outcomes than bad outcomes. So an incomplete pass is a neutral outcome, really, when you think about it. A interception is a highly negative outcome, but it's a very low probability outcome. And then you can either get some form of defensive penalty or a completion. Um, you also get the very, very low possible outcome of an offensive penalty on your receiver. But, I mean, when you think about it, you have more positive potential outcomes than negative potential outcomes. And the positive potential outcomes far outweigh the negative potential outcomes and the neutral potential outcomes. And so just just that specific idea alone really kind of outlines what I'm talking about and what I'm thinking about when I go through the decision-making process. So okay, before why we, you coaches, why is the app? Go ahead. I was just going to say, um, you know, one thought that came to mind is when you actually talk about you know, positive potential of throwing the ball down the field as as far as that outweighing the negative potential. I, to me, I think of, well, isn't that why coaches actually run the ball more in the fourth quarter? Because it's it's the whether conventionally or rationally or not, but <laughs> it, there's fewer negative outcomes that come from running the football, are there not? I mean, throwing the football, there's actually more risk. The offensive holding. Uh, your quarterback gets sacked, fumbles it, uh, throws a pick. When you're running the ball, there's fewer mitigating factors at large. Um, well, I, you can point to heuristics, but if you actually look at the data, you're more likely to hold on a running play than a passing play. Um, your quarterback obviously can only get sacked on the passing play. But if you, like, let's say you're a coach with a lead in the fourth quarter, what you want to do is you want to let your offense do what it's best at. And so if your offense is really like that's the Dallas Cowboys from when Dak and Zeke were in their first years versus the New England Patriots whenever Tom Brady's been in the league essentially since 2008 onward. Brady and Belichick lets Brady throw the ball to ice the game because 
Belichick understands how ruthlessly efficient Brady has become as a as an offensive weapon. And so even if Brady is throwing the ball, he's still throwing the ball accurately and on time. And all the things that running the ball is supposed to allow you to do in terms of running the clock, maintaining possession and control of the ball, making safe plays, mitigating potential risks, all of those things are things that are still in your control so long as you trust your team to be able to play to its strength. See, that actually makes a lot of sense. Now, when you get all fired up, and uh, I think you know a lot of the viewers can get fired up as well, is when teams break their natural tendencies. Teams break what they do uh, best at. You mentioned the phrase, let your offense do what it's best at. Uh, in yeah. the fourth quarter, it's when teams yeah. break that mold for the sake of being conservative that uh, it's yeah. it's glaringly apparent. Yeah, I, I mean, a good example. I don't know if it exactly happened, but let's let's throw out the hypothetical of the Packers have the ball on the thirty yard line of the Vikings in overtime, and they run the ball into the line three times and then kick a field goal and miss it. I don't know if that exactly happened, but you can imagine that scenario playing itself out very easily whereas instead what should be happening is you think about okay in this in this idea in this ideal circumstance i have the best quarterback that's ever walked the face of the planet and i'm including jesus christ by the way and (laughs) i you know i have the most accurate throw like this guy literally is the best guy who's ever played the position um and I'm including Brady. I don't, I don't care how many Super Bowls Brady's won. Aaron Rodgers is the best. And so you either decide, okay, I want to keep the ball and the game in the hands of the best player and in the most important position and the best decision maker and the most accurate passer that's ever walked the face of the planet, or I want him to go hand the ball off to someone else to go then do something that we're much significantly less good at. And so when you break down the, the decision like that, it, it doesn't really make sense. But what's happened is we have so many coaches that coach from a normative place of fear. And so it's you're never going to lose your job or you're never going to be put under fire for running the ball three times into the line and then having your kicker miss a field goal. The kicker might lose his job because, well, if the kicker made the field goal, blah, blah, blah. But what's not being examined is the entire underlying process of that decision. Whereas instead, let's say Rodgers throws a potential pick six. Yeah, that's certainly a potential. But we know, like literally know, that Rodgers is four to one more times likely. He's 400% more times likely to throw a, a touchdown than an interception. So I'm willing to take those odds. I'm willing to you know, let Aaron Rodgers throw the ball and go win me the game than I am to go hand the ball off in this particular circumstance. And and so all this loops back into applying rational understanding of details and stats and knowing what your strengths as a team are to inform your decisions. Not necessarily like you don't have to be Dak Prescott and be throwing the ball 55 times when you know that you can, you can and probably should be running the ball 25 to 35 times a game. Likewise, if you're the Patriots and Brady, you probably shouldn't run the ball 35 times a game. You should be throwing the ball 65 times a game because most of your throws are long handoffs anyways, and the other throws are going to be complete because Brady's really good at completing them. And so knowing why you're doing what you're doing 
and the underlying reasons behind that is so important. And I don't think that many coaches really understand why they're actually doing what they're doing. We're going to get to one of those coaches that we both mutually agree does know why he does what he does. And uh, he's one of the most fun uh, coaches to follow. But I want to dig into this process uh, point a little bit more. Coaches that coach from an enormous place of fear as opposed to applying like rational understanding of their personnel, the situation and the stats, you know, that that's so fascinating because the on field play calling, what comes across laterally on our television sets as the, you know, as the regular TV viewer, it's all we see is results. All we see is results. All we see is results. Whereas the result, you know, obviously execution plays a huge role in it. No question, but you know, the, the result of that play in, in large part or the play itself, whatever it is, it's it's already been dictated 30 seconds beforehand by what went through the coach's yeah. mind when he is determining the situation, when he is analyzing it, when he's figuring out, OK, what what which of my players, you know, performed well enough in practice to where I'm confident executing X play or like you said before. You know, what's going to get me the least heat from fans and the least heat from the media? Because in this century, in this day and age of of football and sports in general, that's a real thing. I mean, it's really hard to block stuff like that out because what we're talking about is mental capacity, mental strength of coaches, of of coordinators. Yeah. And so now now we're really getting into which coaches have a strong mind and which don't. And the beautiful thing about that kind of – critique is if you don't have a strong mind it will manifest itself in some pretty shitty ways late in games and we see it happen every week yes 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 totally absolutely so the best example of that to me is an example of failure actually and um i i think i think most people who are big big football fans will remember this it was a sunday night football game patriots uh versus the colts when peyton was still at indy um, the Colts stage a big, like 10, 11 point comeback in the fourth quarter, uh, and take the lead. No, they're, they're still down like four and the Patriots have the ball with about three or four minutes left in the game. And the Colts have scored like three straight drives. And I don't think Manning's had an incompletion, like all, all of the second half. And so like, you know, you know, if the Colts get the ball back, they know they need one tenth of a second and they're going to score. And so it's fourth and two. They're on their own like 34-yard line, and the Patriots go for it. And they throw the ball on, on, on a 1.9-yard out route to Kevin Falk. And Kevin Falk catches it and doesn't get the extra .1 yards that he needs for the first down. They have like a 65-hour review on it. They don't get the first down still. The Colts get the ball score. Game's over. Blah, blah, blah. And Belichick gets a ton of heat for that. Because, well, why wouldn't you punt it and make them go the length of the field, blah, blah, blah. And so Belichick, being Belichick, doesn't really tell you anything because he has, I think, figured out, well, I shouldn't give anyone the secret that I make decisions not from a place of fear or emotion, but from a place of understanding, like, okay, well, if I kick the ball to Peyton, it just means it's going to take them 10 extra seconds to score instead of five seconds to score. Um, And so that, to me, was a really good example of, Belichick understood, okay, I haven't been able to stop them with my defense all game, but my offense has actually played pretty well. I only need two yards. I have a play that should get me two yards, and I know my, my, 
percent chances of winning the game are highly increased if I get this first down, even though I'm in my own territory. It's a better chance for me to go for it now with my offense on the field than to punt it and put my defense on the field. So I will go for it. And even though I didn't execute here, I would make that decision over and over and over again because I believe that overall and in the long run, my teams will be more successful because of that. Do you remember that play? See, I thought that that was like an AFC title game back in. I thought that was when the Colts finally broke through past the Patriots. I want to say like 06. No. Or was or was it? This it, was a regular season game. Okay, okay, because I'm I'm on Wikipedia looking at the AFC title game that I thought it was, and I can't find the scenario, which means I do remember that, but I thought no, I, I no, must have it mistaken like week, it for it was like week six through week nine. I want to say it was like 2007 through 2011 time period. It had to be before 2011 because that's when Peyton got hurt. I'll start looking for it. It, it was a regular season game. It honestly didn't matter. Um, I can't remember who won the Super Bowl that year. I don't think either of them won the Super Bowl that year. Um, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm pulling it up right now. Game, yeah, here it is. It was November 16th, 2009. Yeah, you're right. It was a regular season so what, game. What week is that? <clears throat> um, This is going to be, uh, man, let's see, November 16th. So I'm thinking out loud that's got to be week, week, week 11, maybe. Dang. That's that's the weeks, right? insane memory by you, though. Um, yeah, so Bill Belichick defended his decision to go for it on fourth down. Um, that amounted to the Patriots' stunning loss. The Patriots lost 35-34 after leading by 17 points in the fourth quarter. Um, yeah, and let's see. Rodney Harrison, a safety for Belichick for six years who retired before that season, called it, quote, the worst coaching decision I've ever seen Bill Belichick make. <laughs> How does that make you feel about Rodney Harrison in hindsight? It, it, I, I have, I'm totally and completely ambivalent toward Rodney Harrison because he has a job to do. <laughs> ESPN analyst Teddy Bruschi said, quote, And the, the, you know what? Here's the thing. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go. Said. Oh, here, here's, here's Brewski. Brewski said this. He said, quote, the decision to go for it would be enough to make my blood boil for weeks. I would look at this decision as a lack of confidence in our ability as a defensive unit to come up with a big play to win the game. <sighs> <sighs> yeah. And, you know, so here's the thing. Is that's what that's how those guys have to think. Totally fine with that. And I, I guarantee you, Belichick either has forgotten about that or doesn't care about that because Belichick's decision-making process has nothing to do with those two guys' emotions. And we were talking off the air about kind of the big overarching picture of, of this, what's happening right here in this story, all the way back in 2009. This is our own little mini revisionist history, if you will, uh, a la yeah. Gladwell, which is so good, by the way. Um, yeah, It's... Uh, it, I mean, I don't mean to sound crass, but it's kind of like it, it's the it's the fu mindset of like I don't care what anybody else thinks. It's the disruption mindset that yeah. the, that you had mentioned before. Bill Belichick doesn't care what his players think. That's the beauty of it. I mean, you have to obviously care about your players. No, I'm not saying that he doesn't care about his players. I'm talking about in isolated decision making processes. Emotions are the enemy. 
Ego is the enemy in those. You're simply trying to take yeah. all other factors out for the sake of isolating the very best decision. Who the hell cares how you get there? Who the hell cares if Rodney Harrison says it's a bad call? Who the hell cares if Brewski gets his little feelings hurt? You have to make the p- call. You're the coach. I mean, damn. Like, it all yeah. comes back down to you. So who gives a crap? Who says anything about it? And that, to me, is the beauty of what it means. Like, you have to take those type of gambles. I don't know if Andy Reid would take those type of gambles, you know? I don't know if there's other coaches out there that would take those type of gambles. Bill Belichick does. He did. He will continue to do so because he doesn't give a rat's ass what other people think, his players included, when it comes to trying to criticize his decisions. And that's what's made him great. Or you you could argue that's part of what's made him great. Yeah, definitely. There's even a theory, so going going more recent, there's even a theory that the reason why Belichick didn't play Malcolm Butler was because they wanted to play three safeties instead, which would make the mismatch in the slot a little bit more favorable toward the for the Eagles, which would make the Eagles want to throw the ball more instead of run the ball, and Belichick knew he wasn't going to be able to stop the Eagles' run game. And so he wanted to make the Eagles look at that mismatch and say, we should be throwing and attacking that mismatch. And hopefully, I mean, it didn't end up working for him again, but hopefully Foles reverts to being regular Nick Foles instead of Super Bowl Nick Foles and doesn't play the best game of his life. And thus, you know, the Patriots actually stand a chance in that game. And it's that kind of decision-making process where you've actually put thought into it and you decide, okay, I'm going to do this. I know it's a risk. I know I could get heat. But I don't care because I actually think this puts my team in the best place to win. That's what I'm talking about when I've when you and I have been talking about this before. And I'll, I'm going to keep pounding this. There are coaches out there who can give their teams an edge. There's maybe five at the very most. And they could be coordinators. They could be head coaches. They could be D coordinators. They could be offensive line coaches. I don't know who they all are, but they have to be out there. Because there are certain teams that keep winning and keep winning and keep winning and keep winning. And I don't care how good Tom Brady is. He's not that stinking good. You're right. You're right. They won with Jacoby Brissett. They won with Jacoby Brissett. You know, uh, it's so funny you bring that up because uh, as we were getting ready to record today, I started getting lost on a Bill Belichick YouTube rabbit hole. <laughs> and one of oh, them, man, and nice. one of those beautiful I mean, which is incredibly worthwhile. If uh if you're looking to get distracted, get distracted by something that that makes you more knowledgeable. That's that's my um uh little uh little sidebar on distraction. Yeah. Um but oh, yeah. there was it was the sound effects of that week three home game Patriots Texans with Brissett Thursday night football. One of the okay. ones where uh, Garoppolo yeah. was hurt and Brady was suspended. And, and uh, it, it, it shows you Belichick interacting with McDaniels before the game, looking at Brissett and the way he's warming up, like analyzing the way he's warming up. And Bill's like, Oh man, you know, he looks a little jittery. McDaniels is like, nah, I think he's going to be okay. Early, like five minutes ago, he was throwing well to the receivers. And Bill's like, okay, that's cool. I trust you. And then that I believe it was the first drive of the game, but it was, it may have been just early in the first half. They execute this beautiful drive. They get down to like the five yard line and they get a naked boot and Brissett scores. And Bill has this huge smile on his face. 
and uh, mm-hmm. just goes right to McDaniel's with that look that's like, I effing love you, man. Like, that was a beautifully, beautifully <laughs> nice. strategized, beautifully exercised, executed drive. So well done. And it was the look and the feeling of, like, they, yeah, they were pissed off about Brady's suspension, but they were so joyful, like, overjoyed that they could game plan to get their third-string quarterback a win over a damn good defense in September. Like, that's right. a Clowney and Watt defense. Right. I mean, it was yeah. it was so, you know, yeah. cool to see that because that is, you don't do that unless you have difference-making coaches that know how to win and know how to make yeah. a difference. I mean, it's really, really incredible. Yeah. And, and the Patriots might be the easiest place to go, but it's because it's the most truest place to go for an example like that when you're talking about difference-makers. Um, but but I'm intrigued to know your thoughts. Who do, besides Bill and the coaches that he's equipped? Um, you know, we'll see. I don't know about Patricia on his own, but Patricia as a coordinator was okay. But but who else in the league right now, be it head coaches or coordinators, would you also put in that category? So we talked a little bit. I've I've been racking my brain. So the Patriots have an offensive line coach who is a legend, Dante Scarnecchia. Um, whenever he's with the yeah, whenever he's with them, they do well. Whenever he's not with them, they, they really struggle. So I'm going to put him in there. Uh, I'm going to put Sean McVay in there. Um, I am going to put Wade Phillips as a defensive coordinator in there. And then I think I'm going to stop right now because I can't think of anyone else that I am very certain I, that I believe is an actual difference maker yet. It goes without saying, but we're talking about positive difference makers. So for those of you clamoring for oh, Tom, course, Tom Cable to be in there, um, no, we're not including him for his <laughs> negative impact on uh, on teams. Uh, I'd say it tongue in cheek as a say uh, oh, as a, yeah. as a uh, Seahawks fan that yeah, I did watch all of the game last night to my to my chagrin. Never oh, did man. I like that game. I hated that game from the kickoff. Um, uh, yeah. But, yeah, no, I've got the list of teams up in front of me right now, too, and, and trying to think out loud of, of who else would qualify. And let me just throw a, a couple names out there because I agree with the list that you've, you've given already. And already, <laughs> anytime you give out an offensive line coach, like I think you take, a, you take the conversation to another level. Um, exactly. I wouldn't have known about Dante Skarnecchia if not for the fact that they highlight him in just about every Patriot Sunday night football and Monday night football game. Yep. At least yep. the, the NBC folks do on Sunday night. Yeah. They do a splendid oh, job. You know who else does? Who is it? He's with, the, um, he's with the Cowboys now, I think. Is it Scott Linehan? The OC, the offensive line coach for the Cowboys is also good so long as he isn't over-promoted. Interesting. Okay, because when I think of Cowboys, so Scott Linehan, who oddly enough has ties to Beaverton, Oregon. Um, he's from Sunset High School out here, which I didn't no know until uh, recently. Yeah, his brother huh. actually coached at Sunset for a very long time. Um Weird. He's the offensive coordinator, um, but when I think of Cowboy assistant coach Edge, I think of Rod Marinelli, the defensive coordinator, who was terrible as a head coach. I think he was the 0-16 Lions coach. Yeah, he was the 0-16 Lions coach. And yet the Cowboys defense is always uh, pretty good against him. I'm looking up the uh, offensive line coach for Dallas right now. Who is this guy? 
Uh, uh, does Paul Alexander ring a bell? No, uh, I. You know, I think it's actually it was Bill Callahan. So he oh. was the Raiders coach when the Raiders played against Gruden in the Super Bowl. Um, when has he coached offensive linemen? Um, I'm looking at his Wikipedia right now. He was an offensive line coach and the offensive coordinator of the Cowboys from 2012 to 2014. And then he became the offensive line coach of the Redskins from 2015 till present. So he's okay. a Jay Gruden assistant. He uh, okay. He also was the O-line coach for the Jets from 08 to 11. That would include the back-to-back AFC title years where yeah. they had a great run game with Sean Green and really Thomas good Jones line. and a hell of an offensive line. Nick Mangold on that O-line and, and uh, DeBrickashaw on that O-line. Yeah, yeah. Damian Woodley. Wo- Woody, yeah, Woody. It yeah. was uh, Woody. Yep, now on, right. now on TV. Um, yep. Callahan also coached Nebraska for four years. That's so Yeah, funny. that was a bad move. See, uh, one of the things that's really interesting is Callahan is a great offensive line coach. Skarnecchia is too. Marinelli, I'm not 100% sold on yet. And the reason why is because I think expectations from that Lions stint still are so low that he <laughs> overwhelms those expectations That's... by being a middling to good defense instead See, of great. What a narrative. What a, what an advantageous narrative. I mean, Mike McCarthy would kill for that narrative. <laughs> exactly. 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 So I'm, uh, the house is out on Marinelli in my uh, mind. But see, I, uh, you know, I, I think we're getting into something really interesting, which is we're going to have to start going. <laughs> we're going to have to start looking at uh, at least OC and DC coordinating positions as well and really start kind of getting into bios because you will start seeing consistently that there are guys who, where they go, you start to see success in those places. And right. it's, it's when they're not in places where they're overpromoted. So, you know, I think the Bill Callahan example is a really great example. When that guy was given too much responsibility, he was never as successful as when he's put in a place where all he focuses on is that O-line. And when you have that O-line, the Redskins had a really good offense from 14 to present so far. I don't know about this season, you know, right now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of a lot of good offense stems from having a really good to very great offensive line. And you, you saw that the Cowboys from 12 to 14 had really good offenses. You know, they didn't necessarily win Super Bowls, but only one team wins a Super Bowl. So... Mm-hmm. I I'm I can't wait to see what type of correlations we we can start drawing from this. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, before we get to uh, you know our our poster child for this conversation, what about Kyle Shanahan? Where does he fit into all this? He's certainly I'm not. Yeah. Well, I I bring him up because you know some of the respected um, football you know voices and and authors I read are in love with his. Uh, sophisticated play calling, his advanced offenses and all this. And he's he doesn't have the personnel that um, Sean McVay has. Um, he just yeah. found his quarterback this, you know, last season for the last six games. Uh, but ironically, both Shanahan and McVay came from the same place. They both came from Washington um, and got head coaching jobs in successive years. So, you know, doesn't Shanahan certainly has to have a chance moving forward to work his way up into this group of qualifiers we're talking about. Yep, absolutely. Shanahan... Shanahan, to me, so the way my mind works for something like this is I have these guys in tiers. So, you know, you put, essentially to me, 
McVeigh and Belichick right now, Skarnecchia and who is my fourth? Wade Phillips is a defensive coordinator. That's my tier one. Those guys, locks in, the, in those positions, so long as they're there, they, they give you an edge. And then tier two, I'm putting you know guys like Shanahan, guys like Mike Zimmer, guys like um, whoever the Philly, uh, the Eagles head coach is. What's his name? Doug Peterson. <laughs> I'm putting I'm putting those guys in like the tier two group where they've had they've had success, and there's a reason for that. But I'm not totally sure what that reason is. It could be because of them. It could be because they've had outstanding talent. It could be also like Shanahan is a great example of. I want to see not just success, I want to see long-term success. So like McVay I'm putting up there because the turnaround that he did with the Rams, changing Jared Goff from one of the biggest busts to all of a sudden someone who you could conceivably think of as being a Pro Bowl quarterback within that offense in less than a season is astonishing. So to me, that was a great enough and long enough timeline for me to say, okay, yeah, I'm on board with that. Shanahan, now that he has a quarterback, because as a coach, you usually need it, specifically as an offensive coach, you usually need a quarterback. Through the Patriots, you're a little different. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Shanahan, I want I want more time to see what he does and, and really see if, you know, is it is it a talent thing? Is it a coaching thing? Is it a combination? I, I need a little bit more time before I, I can really make a decision on him. A name that was briefly floated out there was Pete Carroll, someone that you said was in Tier 1 before but is is no longer there anymore. And to me, you know, being familiar with Carroll, you're familiar with Carroll very much, having been a USC fan um, yeah. for much of your life and me being a Seahawks fan. You know, Carroll strikes me as someone that's not in the conversation of, um, you know, let's see, how do I say this, strategic sophistication. Um, I mean, he prides himself on, I mean, he was a defensive back, you know, he prides himself on flying around, you know, effort, energy, enthusiasm, positive mindset, uh, positive reinforcement. Um, But from a strategic standpoint, the the cover three, the three deep, what he normally employs, it's very simple, you know, it's simple to comprehend. It's probably more difficult to execute. But, Mm -hmm. um, so we're not putting him in the, McVeigh or Shanahan type of categories from strategy, but Carroll's always been set apart by his um, the reinforcement of his winning philosophy. And, yeah. you know, I'm almost, it's almost so obvious, but we have to say that because, you know, there's different, there's different ways to get yourself into tier one. Bilicek is probably a beautiful mix of the two, um, but Carroll is, is probably more on one side than the other, and that one side would be the mindset, the philosophy, the enthusiasm, the, the almost psychology of coaching. Would you agree with that? Totally. I, so the way I look at it is coaching really eventually boils down to three things. It boils down to motivation. It boils down to um, X's and O's or execution or whatever you want to say for that point. And then it boils down to, um, I literally forgot the third thing. Would you include like adjustments in there, like in-game management? Well, to me, that would that would be part of the X's and O's okay. of execution. Um, Is motivation oh, the same as... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I found the third. The third, and, and to me, honestly, the most important thing about coaching is coaching, what, what you have to do as a coach is you have to put people in positions where they can be successful. And so I think Carol... Ex- at, like absolutely excels in two of the three, and, and so one of the, our talk has mostly been focused on 
those guys, you know, specifically with regard to Belichick, where the decision-making process itself, the analytical framework, it's all about analysis in the mind. Carroll has essentially gone away from the mind and gone straight to the heart. And so where Carroll excelled is with the heart. And he was great at that, great at that, great at that. And then for whatever reason, something's happened where he hasn't been able to get the kind of buy-in and to really touch the heart of his players the way that he was you know, the first six or seven seasons he was in Seattle. And whether or not that's just because guys got tired of the message, whether or not that's just because it could be a bunch of different things. I, I don't think Carroll is any worse or better of a coach than he was four or five years ago. So to me, he's either tier one or on the verge of tier one. Um, sometimes I don't think he institutes enough disciplinary control over the team, given all the personal foul penalties they incur. Um, but aside from that, you know, he's definitely up there in my mind as, as one of those top, 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 top coaches. All right, well, let's pivot to Sean McVay. Just a quick uh, point on Carroll, though. I mean, I was just reminded by this that, you know, it, it, right as we sit here on this, you know, entering week three of the 2018 NFL season and, you know, vibes around the Seahawks fan base are particularly low given the <laughs> current roster construction and expectation for the team, mm-hmm. you know, being 0-2. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a down, it's a down moment for a Seahawks fan base. It, it just struck me again, like, you know, it is so it is so hard to win a Super Bowl. It is so hard to get there. It is so hard when I was, you know, in middle school and high school to get to win a wild card game. To to win a divisional to game. To get it to a divisional then. game. Like to actually get there and to win. That was a huge, huge deal. I mean, I was yeah. the 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 passion when Tony Romo drops the snap that was the biggest win of my life back then I mean um you know finally making it to a Super Bowl in 05 like let's not forget how difficult it is to actually get there and you know what Seattle under Carroll got there twice it is and they they won one in historic fashion crushing what at that point was the most historic offense that walked the earth yep I mean we I mean I just remember that Seahawks fans like that happened and obviously you know the pain of 2014 and Super Bowl 49 is is unique um and that sucks but I mean hey back-to-back NFC championships that's a short list of coaches that can accomplish that so I think Pete should still have that on the first of his uh, of his byline and not his offensive lines from 2015 on were terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so, but we're always caught up in the moment and understandably. Um, anywho, uh, Sean McVay is 32 years old and lighting the world on fire. Oh, to be Sean McVay. Um, so fun to watch the highlights. I go out of my way so I can watch Rams highlights, even though they're in the NFC West and, and uh, they're going to win this sucker again. Um, yeah. This guy sets himself apart from a strategy standpoint, from you know, just the fact that he's so damn young. I mean, he was 30 when he got the job, the youngest head coach in NFL history at that time. And yeah. it took him one year to get his team to the playoffs and to transform. You said Jared Goff is a borderline pro bowler. I know where you're coming from, but I, I looked it up. He went to the pro bowl last year. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know injuries play a role, guys pulling out, but technically he was a pro bowler last year, which well, only which only serves to to ratify your point. But yeah. I mean, what Sean McVay is doing with the LA Rams, 
I, I do think we got to bring up the fact that he's got so much talent on that team. Oh, my Lord. Especially this year. But even if we... I mean, we'll take what he has done this year to a point, sure. But even the roster he had last year, without Brandon Cooks, without Ndamukong Sue or, you know, Marcus Peters or whatever he has on defense now, what he did last year, at that age, with that experience, I mean, this guy is a... He, he's he's a cut of a different cloth. He's a difference maker. So let's let's go back one year before that. So you take almost that exact same Rams roster. You take an even younger, more explosive Todd Gurley, an even younger, you know, say what you want about Goff. They didn't actually play him that much that that past year. Jeff Fisher. That team was what like six and ten with under Fisher. Yeah. And then you take almost that exact same roster who everybody said had tons and tons and tons of talent. Everybody knew there was talent there. But you take that almost exact same roster, you insert this one human being into that picture, and all of a sudden the Rams just take off. And so that, that to me is like a really – I mean, he's the quintessential example of this guy for whatever reason, and there's a lot of them in my mind, gave that team a different, a different edge, literally and figuratively. They you know, do different things. They do things differently. They approach the game differently. He approaches his decision-making process differently. And I think a lot of those things really help contribute to why that team is able to have the success that it has now. And then obviously that was last year. This year you add significantly even more talent and, you know, they they look like monsters this year. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny. Jeff Fisher got fired in uh, week 14 of that 2016 season and, uh, it, it was right before a Thursday night game with the Seahawks, um, and the interim duties went to a guy named John Fossil, who was the son of uh, Jim Fossil, who Jeez, took the Kerry Collins-led Giants to a Super Bowl appearance that one year. Against the Ravens. Against the Ravens, and they got their asses <laughs> handed to them. But, hey, they still won the NFC with Kerry Collins. Um, but that's they only beat, They beat a good Rams team that year. The Rams were like... 13-0, and 0, and they went into uh, the Meadowlands that year and ended up losing to that Giants team. That's right. That's right. And if memory serves, I think the uh, the Giants ended up beating the Vikings in the NFC title game. You're right. By, like, oh my gosh. a lot to a little. Like, it was we, not uh, close. We have too much NFL history in our collective consciousness. We do, and yet I start <laughs> thinking about how much I know, and then I realize how many seasons were played before I was born, and I'm like, yeah. oh, my God, I have so much to learn. Um, yeah. But I only mention that because John Fossil is one of those guys who's been a special teams coach exclusively for, I mean, like his entire career, an assistant special teams coach or a uh, or a, a special teams coach in the NFL, at least, ever since he came into the NFL in 05, it looks like. So, and that's wow. that's a guy who's understood his role is what I mean. Not looking up to get promoted. He'll take in an interim duty when it's called upon, but but he figured out his niche. He was the son of a head coach, but he figured out his niche. He stuck in it. He's probably made thousands of dollars and has had some of the best special teams units in the league every year. And, yeah, you know, yeah. even those guys can be difference makers on a staff when you think about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Jared Goff hardly played as a rookie. Um, and now McVay, in his second year with Goff, took him from being a question mark to being a pro bowler. And, yeah, that he is absolutely 100% a difference maker. The only – all right, so – I agree he's a difference maker, no question. But what about, at what point do you have to prove that by winning meaningful games? And I only bring that up because, yeah, it's so easy to hype this praise on him now, um, and he deserves it 
in a lot of ways, but what what about the playoff loss from last year that he lost by two scores at home? You know, what what about the fact that he hasn't uh, you know, taken a team by himself deep into the postseason? Does that even does playoff success even factor in to the discussion we're having right now? Why and why not? Yes and no. And so Yes, because playoff success, I mean, the game doesn't change. The rules are still the same. Everything stays the same. And so, so long as the process that you use by which you make your decisions and you have had success in the regular season stays the same, you should, by merit of that, be able to continue to have success further on into the playoffs. Now, a couple of caveats to that. Um, the first and most important is that over a 16-game sample size, you will play probably about four really good teams, and the rest of the teams are going to be average to bad. That's just how the league works these days. And so if you are 12-4, and four, you very there's a good chance that you just lost to four very good teams, and you ended up beating all the teams that you should have, and your team's actually mediocre to decent talent, and you actually overachieved that year. Um, the second caveat to that is because playoff games are one-game sample sizes in themselves, you as a coach have no control over the luck of the game. You can't control whether or not the ball bounces to the right or to the left. And if it bounces to the left, it bounces to you. And if it bounces to the right, it bounces to your opponent. Um, so you do need luck. Everybody needs luck. I mean, if you go look at the Patriots, they're one of the quote-unquote luckiest teams in the world. Um and I don't think anybody in that organization would argue that they've had luck, but they would also argue that they've continually put themselves in places where they've been able to maximize that luck. And so I think what a coach and what McVay needs to do is he needs to keep getting into the playoffs and keep maximizing his decision-making processes. And if he does that enough times, he'll probably most likely have the success necessary to get further and further into the playoffs and eventually win a Super Bowl. So at what point does, um, you know, if we're, if I'm adding Doug Peterson and submitting him for um, consideration, the fact that, I mean, the narrative with Doug Peterson is almost so obvious that I, I don't want it to go against my point because we're not exactly narrative people here <laughs> or pro-narrative yeah. people. We like to deconstruct them. But the narrative yes. is so obvious that it's still, I mean, it's got to hold some water. I mean, the dude literally, I'm not going to say he pioneered the RPO. That would certainly be hyperbole. But he put it on the map, and he won all the biggest games with a backup yeah. quarterback as an underdog in all three, including yeah. a Super Bowl. I mean, yeah. how does that factor in? That factors in. So there's a couple things. One, and so, you know, I mean, we, we prefaced this before before the pod, but I'm going to run it over real quick. The, the first preface, and I think the most important one, is if we go back and look at the 2017 season, the Eagles were by far the most talented and deepest team, and they're strongest at the most important positions aside from quarterback. Um, they had the best and most healthy offensive line in the game, essentially. The Rams were a close second, actually. Which is um, weird because Jason Peters was hurt for most of the year, and they still yeah. had they, they, they were still so deep were monsters. there. Yeah, yeah, they, they were so deep that it didn't matter, which is actually kind of scary because they still should be really good this year. They went and got Jay Ajayi, even though they didn't need him. I mean, that guy averaged over seven yards a carry behind that line during his first, you know, stint that season, and so. 
the 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 reason why I bring that up is because it it's significantly easier, and it's it's still hard, but it's significantly easier to win when you have the best team going into each game. And so, even though they were underdogs, the only reason why they were underdogs in those games was because they lost Carson Wentz and they had a backup quarterback instead of their starting quarterback. Now, their backup quarterback played two really good games and the best game of his career being one of those games. And he played a, a pretty mediocre game, one of those games and probably got lucky and ended up with a win in that game against the Falcons. And so, um, you combine those three things. And so that's, that's number one. Number two is I am not 100% sold on Peterson yet, but I am really close on Peterson. And so, and that's just an reason, opinion thing to be clear. It, what's that? That's just a, an opinion and a feel thing on your end oh, is what you're sure, saying right for sure, now. Yeah. For sure. And so the reason why, and here's what I like about Peterson, is I, I think, and I'm not sure, but I think that he does not make decisions from a place of fear. What I don't know about him is where he makes his decisions from. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's where I'm not totally sure about him is, you know, when when the Eagles went into Seattle and – played Seattle last year, they went for it on fourth down like seven times because they knew that's what they needed to, to be doing is be, they needed to be attacking and going for it all the time. And I'm pretty sure they ended up winning that game. No, no. Seattle um, beat them 24 to seven. We Seattle owned that Sunday night game. And that was, Seattle, that, that was game? the best win of Seattle season because they okay. fell apart after that. But Carson Wentz was fully healthy that game too. That's yeah. such the head scratcher. The Eagles were fully healthy. Seattle was fully healthy. Seattle took them to the woodshed. And then the Eagles the next week won on the road at the LA Rams. And that's right. when Wentz tore that's his ACL. When Wentz got hurt. Yeah. Can you look up uh, the Eagles' fourth down attempts and conversions yes. for that game? Absolutely. This is why we're. This is why we're doing this. This is beautiful. Here we go. All right. Let's fire up a little twenty seven. You can flesh out a point or two if you were still working so, on one. So, so the the point that I'm making is is what I'm looking for in a coach is I'm looking for a guy who can get buy in and who can motivate. And I think it's pretty clear that whatever Peterson does, his players love him. I'm looking for a guy who has a very good, distinct reason for making his decisions. That's not from a place of fear. And I think he's got the second half of that equation, but not. I don't know about the first half. And then I'm looking for a guy who's got the X's and O's. And I don't know if he actually has the X's and O's or if he's just had the best players every time he stepped onto the field. Now, what, what does that matter? Not necessarily, but... The question that I've had and that I've bandied about with other people is, would Doug Peterson have gone and had the same impact with LA Rams in the same situation that McVeigh did? And would McVeigh have had the same impact and success as Peterson had with the Eagles? And my personal opinion is, I think Peterson would not have had the same amount of success as McVeigh with the Rams, but I think McVeigh would have had at least fairly similar, if not really close to the same success that Peterson had with the Eagles. And the reason why I think that is because <laughs> even if they're equal coaches, then the talent wins out and McVay's got tons and tons of talent with the Eagles or the Rams. And if they're not equal coaches, McVay still is going to be fine. Whereas I'm, I'm not quite sold on Peterson yet. It tickles the brain to think about McVay with the Eagle personnel on offense. Oh my um, God. Just because, 
you know, I mean, that offensive line is so, so good. Even I'm not sure if it'd be better, though, than what he's got with Gurley and, and now yeah. Cooks. Like, that's the thing. Like, I mean, yeah. he, Wentz might be better than Goff. I'm fine saying that right now. But yeah. um, other than that, it's here's the big thing. It's like, does he still have Jim Schwartz and does Peterson still have Wade Phillips? Because even though Schwartz like Phillips, was not a great head coach. Damn, if that guy can't coach defense. Yeah, they both are really solid defensive coordinators. That's why that, that conversation don't is Don't so give them head coaching jobs. <laughs> and, and please, like Jim Schwartz, don't, like at what point, I mean, and who am I to tell somebody what to do, but, um, uh-oh, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay, good, I got you. Um, I mean, at what point does it... <laughs> Does it come upon Phillips? And I'm especially worried about. Uh, um, uh, I'm especially worried about. Um, God dang, what's his name? Schwartz, Schwartz. That he would actually go and promote himself to take a head coaching job because he's young enough and probably wants to challenge himself again. I'm like Jim, don't do it, man. You're in a perfect situation. Just yeah. stay put. Yeah. Um. In any case, they went in this uh, Eagles Seahawks game. The Eagles were. Actually, two of four on fourth down, but four fourth down attempts is is way high uh, for any typical NFL game. They were eight of 16 on third down. Um, 50% is a decent clip. So between the two, you know, 10 of 20. Um, but Wentz also had a fumble on the one-yard line early in the game that kind of changed the shape of that game from the outset. Um, and, uh, yeah, it ended up being a 24 to 10 Seahawk victory. They were up 10 nothing at the end of the first quarter, and kind of went from there and obviously yeah, the Seahawks so fell apart from that after that game I was convinced the Seahawks were an NFC contender I was convinced I mean that's a December home game and they took down the one seed by two scores yeah after that I mean it pains me to look at what the Seahawks did after that but I know they uh they got the doors blown off them at home by McVeigh. that's that's what I knew we were in trouble yeah is uh What'd they do? Oh, they lost. At, Seattle lost at Jacksonville 30 to 24. Yeah, I remember that game. By the way, honorable mention, I think, it, when you're talking about tears, to Nathaniel Hackett, the offensive coordinator of Jacksonville. Really? Um, that AFC title game from last year, I, I, I almost cried when Jacksonville lost because that was a masterful game plan for three and a half quarters. Yeah, it um, was. But look at what happened in the fourth quarter. This is what I'm talking about. I think this actually would probably best crystallize our conversation. And it, it's topical because they didn't go conservative this past week against the Patriots when they got them again. They kept throwing and they won the damn game by two scores. And the ir- irony of it all. The irony of it all is that they didn't have Leonard Fournette in this game, and so almost the personnel dictated that they couldn't go conservative even if they wanted to because they didn't have their first-round running back. Yeah, so it makes you kind of wonder, did they keep throwing because they didn't have Fournette, or did they keep throwing because they learned a lesson? Well, I love that question, but I would would hope it's the latter. I would hope so too, but I'm not convinced, man. (laughs) I'm not convinced. Uh, you know, it's also so fun for me and this got to be a conversation we also touch on, but oh my God, it is so fun to watch Tony Romo call a game. Um, you know, he called the AFC title game last year, Jacksonville, New England, and then he called this past Sunday's game and I almost, I want to get it. I I didn't, I don't have NFL game pass, you know, cause I didn't want to make the, the financial investment, but 
I think I'm going to have to buy it again because <laughs> I just want to go back, not only watch film, but I want to go back and watch literally every game that Romo's done. Not he's to say good. he's perfect, but I feel like you could learn so much football if you rewatch some of the stuff he's teaching, yeah. um, you know, and just so I can learn and soak it all up. Like, it, I'm sure it'd be a great starting place at the very least. Before uh, before we go, that's gonna wrap it up. Connor, do you have any uh, uh, final thoughts on this on this topic we've been talking about? This McVeigh, this different make difference makers, or um, you know, we we really fleshed out a lot of those ideas there. Yeah, I mean, the, I think I think the final thought is is what I said. You know, your decision making process can't come from an emotional place or can't come from a place of fear. So, you know, I I, I think actually Peterson and and going for it four times on the road in Seattle, one of the loudest places, you know, in the entire NFL, um, kind of crystallizes that. I don't know. I don't know if he's doing it from a statistically analytically driven place or not, but he understood and understands so far, maybe that, you know, if it's fourth and three and you're between your 35 and their 35, you probably have a much better chance of converting that than anything else really in terms of positive outcomes for your team. And so those sorts of decisions and and the reasons why you make those decisions are important. And I think that's where coaching can really give you marginal edges. And, And in the NFL, it's the marginal edge that eventually leads to victory. Agreed there, and uh, I just know Brian Schottenheimer supplies no such marginal edge, and so we're a six-win team. But that's all right. You know, teams go through phases. (laughs) 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 All right, we'll wrap it up there. Connor, it was a lot of fun, my man. Thanks, Judah.